for the church family, just a heartfelt thanks to our orchestra for their service to us, their uh, blessing to us during this time. And also, uh, as they find their seats, also a heartfelt, a big heartfelt thanks to our decorating committee led by uh, Ms. Pam Hinesley and how beautiful they make our uh, sanctuary during this season. So a big thank you from the church family uh, to our orchestra and to our uh, decorating uh, people. Okay, uh, let's continue our reading of the Gospel of John. Uh, we've just finished uh, up John the Baptist's piercing line, uh, convicting line in verse 30 of chapter 3. He must increase, but I must decrease. That was his response to the people who came to him and said, Look, uh, John, uh, this group, Jesus and his folks, they're, they're baptizing more people than you. And, uh, and John wisely and uh, rightly refused to get into a ministry competition thing and gave us that great, great line. He must increase. Jesus must increase. And I must decrease. Now, beginning at verse 31, scholars are divided over whether uh, this continues to be John speaking or uh, Holy Spirit narrative. Uh, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because it's in the Bible. So it's God speaking to us, whether it's John the human, his words, or whether it's uh, the narrative that the Holy Spirit gave uh, to uh, John the apostle as opposed to John the Baptist. Uh, so let's pick it up at verse 31, John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. There's Christmas right there, right? He who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Note the synonymous verbs there, believe and obey. They're equal. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but contrast whoever does not obey. The son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So believing results in obeying. Sorry, Justin, I always got to preach a little bit when I'm up here. I'm sorry. Luke chapter 2 is our sermon text today. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'm just going to read it without comment, okay? And we'll turn it over to Pastor Justin. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, very familiar passage, perfect for Christmas. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration under Quirinius, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Be seated. Good morning. Oh, man, what a blessing to be here. Once again, um, my heart is just full. It just And what a theme that just really came forth this morning. I don't know if you've caught it, but um, from the Old Testament reading, rejoice greatly. Ryan mentioned the joy of the nations, the, the delight that, that, that drew uh, the, the magi, the wise men to, uh, to come to Jesus, uh, the joy of the nations in Ryan's prayer and in our readings and in our singing, uh, joy, unspeakable joy. And it really is, right? And if you know Christ, your heart resonates uh, with, with that refrain, right? And so, uh, and, and singing joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, and, and listen, that, uh, what resonates and what's so fitting about it is there is such reason, that is such a fitting response for what we have because of what God has done for us. The wrath of God on those who don't believe. Born in sin, under a curse, fallen, right? Separated from God. But Christ has come, and he who came from heaven is above all, and he came, as we sang, to conquer the grave, right? And to bring us life. He came to seek and save the lost. Think of those verses you could call Christmas verses, but they're not really just December verses. And you don't have to use that name, but the advent of our Lord, the coming of Jesus to save you because God had in his eternal plan, a plan of redemption to save a people for himself, to dwell with them, for us to dwell with him forever and ever. For all eternity, what other response is fitting besides joy and worship and humble gratitude? So, so just uh, thank you so much for, for everyone who's come up. I've just so, been so blessed already and encouraged by what has been sung and shared. And my heart is full once again. And as we come to the Word of God and as we, as we consider more deeply this morning... Uh, just exactly how this was all orchestrated, planned, executed. I pray and continually pray that you will be encouraged, that you will be taught, that, that you will be transformed. Your mind will be renewed as we come to the scriptures uh, this morning. So uh, let's pray and then let's, uh, let, let's, let's go to God's word. Father God, thank you so much for this time together. Father, for the blessing and the joy of being together right now in this moment, and just the joy and the blessing that as your people, we will share eternity together, that we have been brought from death to life, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into, into the kingdom of light, because Jesus has done this for us. So as we focus this morning, once again, 
on this part of your mission, of this part of redemption story, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on a body so that you may come and conquer the grave, that you may come and die as our substitutionary uh, lamb on the cross and then be resurrected to life, conquering, winning, reversing the curse and being able and, and willing to bring to us this gospel, this good news of great joy, that we can know God, as Ryan said. Lord, what a blessing that, uh, that you have come to bring salvation to sinful men and women and children. You are good. You are so good. So be glorified in this time. And I do pray that our hearts would be encouraged, our minds would be taught, that we would be transformed more into the likeness of Jesus and that we would be, that we would be um, spurred on, Lord, to go and tell and to, and to uh, obedience and to worship and to all things that glorify you and that magnify your name. So, Father, with, with all of that uh, and with all of these, these wondrous glories in this Thanksgiving, we come to you now and we open your word together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, just a quick review because it fits, because I want to go a little further into one of the subpoints from last week. And last week we looked at Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. And that passage in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is actually quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7. All right. And we looked at verses 6 through 8 because that verse 8 in Psalm 40 was fitting. Right. But it just wasn't included in the quotation in Hebrews. And so we saw and focused on the fact that the incarnation of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection was was planned and designed within the Holy Council of the Trinity well in advance. And according to Hebrews 10, 1 through 3, all right, Jesus took on flesh and blood. Jesus took on a body because that was the only possible way for God to accomplish his ultimate goal of saving a people for himself, that he would be our God and that we would be his people dwelling with him for all eternity. Because Hebrews 10, 1 through 3, talk about the old covenant, the sacrificial system, and it's in its insufficiency to accomplish that. In verse 1, it says that uh, the law was only a shadow. The law, the old covenant sacrificial system, the sacrificing of animals was temporary. It was not the real thing. It was not the reality. So we saw, one, that the law was a shadow. We saw, two, that the sacrificial blood of bulls and goats can't make perfect. And then uh, the third thing we saw in verses 1 through 3 on the old covenant sacrificial system is that it also can't remove sin. And that's a major problem. That's a dilemma for us because if we're going to be with God, if we're going to know God, we need those two things desperately. We need forgiveness, we need the removal of our sin, and we need righteousness. And the author of Hebrews, God is very clear, right, before we get to verse five, 
that Jesus took on a body. Consequently, for a reason, he took on a body because the blood of bulls and goats could make us perfect. And we need perfection to enter heaven. Couldn't remove sin. We need our sin forgiven because we have transgressed against a holy and a perfect God. Right? And the hymn writer penned it. I love the phrase, uh, be of sin, the double cure. He understood that. Save from wrath and make us pure. So your two greatest needs and our greatest problem that we're born with right, is that we need forgiveness. We've got a sin problem. But God could forgive our sins, but that doesn't necessarily in and of itself fit us or prepare us or make us uh, able or worthy to be in heaven. Right. So he forgave our sins and he could have said just hypothetically, your sins are forgiven. You're not going to be punished, but just, you know, just be obliterated, cease to exist. You won't be punished. No, we went a step further. Jesus not only died to remove our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. He he takes our filthy rags and clothes us with his righteousness. Why is that important? Because we need righteousness to be in heaven, to be with God. He is a holy and a righteous and a perfect God, right? So both of those aspects are central, are so important. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take care of that. So in verse five, we see this very important word. So consequently, because of that, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O God, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he goes on to say, I have come to do your will. And so we saw in, in those verses, right, and added verse 8 from Psalm 40, where he said, and I delight to do your will. We saw three, ma- we, we focused on three major points last week. Uh, we focused on the fact that Jesus preexisted and he preplanned, right, taking on a body and coming. Right? Then we saw, two that he's the only being in the whole universe who was fit or qualified, or capable of accomplishing that mission. Jesus, he's the only one, all right? So he came to do God's will, and he's the only one who could do it, okay? Now, this was evident when Jesus was born, all right? Remember, the angels had even predetermined, God had predetermined, and the angels announced a predetermined name for Jesus, the name that was fitting for him. For you shall call his name... Jesus, that's right. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Before he was even born, that's, the, that's what the angel told, um, that's what he told Joseph. That's what he told Mary. Name him Jesus because he's on a mission. He's coming with this purpose. He's coming to save his people from their sins. And, he, and that name is fitting for him. Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. Right? And Jesus came to bring that. All right? So, but notice, the, notice the, the absolute and just indicative nature of that phrase. Not Jesus is coming and he, and he hopes, he's really hoping to save some people from their sin. Okay? Or we really hope, or he's going to do his best. No, it's very absolute, isn't it? It's very explicit. He will save his people from their sins. That's amazing, right? Listen, uh, I, I, love, I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said about this Jesus coming to be our savior. 
this coming to, to, to remove our sin, to save us from them. I'll quote Spurgeon here, quote, it is a gracious but very startling fact that our Lord's connection with his people lies in the direction of their sins. This is amazing condescension. Sin is a horrible evil, a deadly poison. Yet it is this which gives Jesus his title when he overcomes it. What a wonder this is. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. End quote. Aren't you thankful for Christmas? Aren't you thankful? And not just December, aren't you thankful that Christ came to relate to us, to take care of our sin problem, to take care of our deformity, right? How we deformed and defamed the image of God. And he came to restore and to renew us. Listen, he was perfectly fit for that purpose. Christ alone is qualified to be our savior, all right? And then that was the, some of the subpoints of that. And that's where we're going to pick up today on one of those subpoints. All right? The son of God took on a body. He preexisted from all eternity. This is very unique, okay? Because he preexisted and then he took on a body, right? So, so uh, that was the first qualification we looked at. He was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And as such, he was born both fully God and fully man. That's why the, the, the hymn writers of these Christmas hymns could, could, uh, could pen phrases like, Jesus, Lord at thy birth, born the king of angels, born to conquer the grave. We just sang it, all right? Jesus uh, is the son of God, all right? The son of God taking on a body, born of a virgin Mary. Very unique, all right? And very important because all men born uh, of natural means are born in Adam, are born in the fall and under the curse. Jesus, in all of God's glorious wisdom, right, and knowledge and foresight, uh, had a perfect solution for that. The Son of God would come and be able to be fully human to accomplish this mission. We also saw that Jesus is qualified distinctly and uniquely because he was born sinless and he remained sinless his whole life, all right? He unwaveringly and perpetually fulfilled the law and the essence of its greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. He obeyed every, every uh, aspect of the law and he obeyed the very essence of the law. Right. So his outward obedience and his inward obedience were spot on. We're perfect. Right. And that's important because, remember, we need that perfect blood, that perfect righteousness that he gives. And then lastly, we saw that Jesus is his incarnation, his coming fulfilled every single prophetic promise and shadow and type of the old covenant regarding his person and his work. All right, and he did this, Jesus came, this was our last point last week, willingly and joyfully, that Jesus would come 
and be this man of sorrows, this suffering servant who would be beaten, who would be despised, he would be rejected, right? But when he took on this body, when he kind of accepted this mission that we read about in Psalm 40, verse 8, what was his heart and his spirit behind it? I delight to do your will. I desire to do your will. Right. As hard as it would be, and in spite of all the humble circumstances that the eternal Son of God right, would face, that he would consider equality, this is based on Philippians 2 in our memory verse, part of our memory verse this month, he considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus delighted and desired to do that. Why? I think the overwhelming message of the scripture is he delighted to obey the Father and he delighted to accomplish the mission of saving a people for himself. You, me, amazing. Right. So Second um, Corinthians eight, nine says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus came to take away your curse, your poverty and to give you immeasurable riches of all the glories of his inheritance, the glories of heaven, the glories of being in the very presence of God as his people for all eternity, okay? That's why Christ was made poor. That's why he delighted and desired to, to do this. He willingly and joyfully came into this world to rescue you and to rescue me and to redeem us, all right? We sing about it. We sang about it last week. Pleased is man with men to dwell. It pleased Jesus to come and dwell with us as our Emmanuel, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So with that review as our backdrop, I want to dig a little deeper this morning at one of those subpoints from last week about Jesus's qualification, his fitness, if you will, to be our savior because he is unique and he alone is worthy. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one promised from the very beginning, from the fall in the garden. All right, we received this, 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 initial promise that as the fall happened, Adam and Eve sinned, Satan tempted, and in that judgment to Satan, all right, God told him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And so as Jesus, as we go through redemptive history, all right. One of the great, unique, and distinctive qualifications of Jesus is that every promise, starting with that one, that God had made through the scriptures, okay, concerning his plan to send Jesus, the Christ, into the world to save a people by faith, to crush the head of Satan, to reverse the curse, and to establish his kingdom by means of a new covenant. All right. One of the most distinguishing and uniquely qualifying aspects of that is Jesus fulfilled every single one of those promises. Because remember, the Bible is at its core one unified story with creation, fall, redemption, and consummation framing this meta-narrative of Scripture. God's ultimate goal, okay, for history and for humanity 
is found simply by looking at the end of the, of the Bible. Look at Revelation 21. You see where God is going. He has revealed his plan and what all this is leading to from the garden all right, to glory in Revelation 21. A new heavens and a new earth where God says, I will dwell with them and they shall be my people. All right? And his glory will be the light of heaven and the lamb will be on the throne and we'll be with God forever and ever. All right, that's a short summary. Go back and read it. It's beautiful, all right? Sinless, perfect, glorified, no pain, no weeping. I bet we can hit the high notes of a holy night there. Just my guess. Don't know if we'll be singing that in heaven, but whatever we're singing, we'll hit those notes. All right, it's going to be beautiful. All right, um, so um, this means that God's plan to send his son was not plan B. It was not an afterthought. It wasn't, ah, oh, Adam and he blew it. What can we do, right? No, all right, this is not plan B, it's plan A. And through symbols, through shadows, through types, through prophecies and promises, God revealed his plan steadily and surely and incrementally throughout the, the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, all right? His plan to redeem and restore through the person and work of Jesus Christ is right at the center of this narrative. It fits it, right? Consider what happened after the resurrection when Jesus walked with the two men on the road to Emmaus. Turn and just look at it uh, if, if you can, or just listen. But it's in Luke 24. Just flip here to the end of the book. Luke 24, starting at verse 25. And we'll read 25 through 27. Now, the context here, you may know it. Uh, all this, there's been this big stir around Jerusalem. Jesus, who is the Christ, he, he was arrested. And then he was crucified and they buried him. And now the stories are swirling that the tomb is empty, that he's risen. And so these two men who are walking on the road are discussing all these things, the scripture says. And then Jesus approaches them and they don't recognize him. All right, but with, with all this happening and Jesus approaches them, listen what he tells them, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And man, I would, wouldn't you just love to be here on the road for this lesson? This would just be one of the greatest sermons, one of the greatest lessons, one of the greatest courses. Talk about great courses, this right here. All right, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you catch that? Think about it. From Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, all the way back to Genesis, and through all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things concerning himself. Brethren, brothers and sisters, Christ and what we're celebrating and singing about this very morning are right at the heart of this story. It's all pointing to Christ. He is the great fulfillment. He is the great, uniquely and distinctly qualified Son of God to be our Savior. It's a huge statement. And that would be an awesome lesson. All right, so with that in mind, that's, I want to focus this morning on uh, just a few of the prophecies. Time won't permit to cover them all. There's multiple properties, but I just want to look at a few, 
with you this morning. And I particularly want to look at the, the prophecies that deal with geographic places, okay? Because there's something very amazing there and very divinely uh, orchestrated. And I'm praying that you see that this morning and that your amazement on this, this uniqueness of Christ, the fitness of Christ, right, will fill your hearts with, with renewed wonder and awe, okay? So, uh, now, in our sermon text, Luke 2, 1 through 7, we catch one of them. That's a little bit of a springboard text because I want to look at a few in Luke 2 and in Matthew 2. All right. But consider Luke 2, 1 through 7. Just in the reading alone, even though prophecies aren't quoted, think about just how many are covered in Luke 2, 1 through 7. There are at least four implicit references to fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. All right. That they were coming out of Nazareth that they were going to Bethlehem, that they were of the line of David, that's that Davidic line that the Christ would come through, and that Mary was with child to her betrothed, Joseph. It wasn't Joseph's child. It was going to be a virgin birth. And uh, there are so many just fulfillments and promises happening right here. All right? It's amazing. All right, and so I want to just emphasize the prophecies that deal with the geographic locations, starting with Bethlehem. So if you're back in Luke 2, all right, it says this in verses uh, 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He wanted a census. He wanted a count for his kingdom to just consider the vastness of it. Who knows all that he had in mind, the tax, the counting, all right, the, the, the self-glory, the pride. And he's oblivious to what's really happening, okay? He's really an instrument. It's like a pawn in a chess game. He's really an instrument on the world stage of what God is doing to bring a very obscure, poor, humble couple out of Nazareth to Bethlehem. They had no reason to go to Bethlehem. They weren't planning to go to Bethlehem, but to fulfill this prophecy and for God's word to remain true, all right, then the Christ needed to be born in Bethlehem. So just start considering now the wonder all right, of how God made this prophecy happen, how we fulfilled this promise, okay? Because it's a real dilemma, all right? Mary's pregnant. They're not of great means, and they're in Nazareth, very poor region. And so they've got to get to Bethlehem. So enter verse one. All right. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree all right, that everyone should be taxed. And they would have to go back to their hometown, the town of their lineage, to register. All right. This is happening because there's a prophecy back in Micah 5. Micah 5, 2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem... Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So the problem is that Mary and Joseph live roughly 70 miles away. Right? And there weren't cars or buses or transits or anything like that back then, of course, just feet, donkeys, right? Horses and such. They didn't have horses based on all we could tell. All right. So what happens that causes this poor, humble couple to make this difficult trip in a very, from human, in human terms, untimely right, way? 
Well, God stirs the heart and mind of a secular ruler, and not just any secular ruler. This is uh, presumably the most powerful ruler and emperor in the world at the time, right? Over the most powerful empire in the world at this time. Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and he announces a decree that all the world, every region of his kingdom would come to be registered and counted in their hometowns. And so Mary and Joseph being descendants of King David, which fulfills that prophecy, would have to travel to the town of their lineage, to Bethlehem. So this decree steers them to the little town of Bethlehem. And wouldn't you know it, it just so happens to be right around the time of Mary's due date. And the scripture says that this is the fullness of time. This is the right time. This is, this is sovereignly and providentially orchestrated. Okay? And so we see here that God is a God of means. And through these means, he always impeccably executes and establishes his plans. From creation that you see around you, trees, flowers, cold front storms, to empires, from presidencies, to planets, and listen, and be reminded, especially in this day and time, because I know it's very easy to get carried away with all you see around us in politics, and in elections, and in presidencies, and in viruses, and COVID, right? What a great reminder, just a side note this morning, God is always in control. He is always working all things in accordance with his will, and working, according to Romans 8, 28, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Psalm 21.1 says it very clearly. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And in this case, the stream that is Caesar Augustus's heart is turned towards, and unbeknownst to himself, is turned towards this registry, this census, that's going to bring Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, just in time for the birth of Christ. And that prophecy will be fulfilled, right? The orchestration, the fullness of time, it's wondrous, isn't it? It's amazing. All right, so, um, but rest in that, in that that happened then, God is still in control today, right? And take to heart the fact that Jesus has overcome the world and you don't have to fret about all these things, politics, viruses, presidencies, right? Don't fret, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. The Lord God Almighty reigns. He is on the throne and he is continually working out his plan until we get to Revelation 21, until we get to the consummation of all things and the new heavens and the new earth. So back to Mary and Joseph. So unbeknownst, unbeknownst to Caesar, but also to Mary and Joseph, okay, um, God was guiding all these events. And I love the words of John Piper. He's got a, an Advent book, Good News of Great Joy. And he says at the end of one of the readings, he says, so God wields an empire to bless his children, right? To bring this humble couple for the Messiah to be born. God wields an entire empire for, for that very moment, all right, and that very purpose. Now, so this gets them to Bethlehem, but there are some other prophecies that we know about Bethlehem, but there's some other things that are gonna happen as you jump to Matthew 2, and they happen in succession. And if you just look at them at face value and without knowing the story, you're gonna read this. You would understand this about the Messiah. He's gonna come from Bethlehem. He's gonna come out of Egypt. Something's gonna be stirring in Ramah, 
and he's going to be called a Nazarene. And again, we know the story. We see God continuing to orchestrate this. But this Christ has to be some unique person with some very unique circumstances. Because how could all that be true in one man? How can he be from Bethlehem, Egypt, maybe Ramah, and Nazareth? How does all that happen? And so let's continue to look. So Luke 2 shares how they got to Bethlehem. But now just flip with me back to Matthew chapter 2. And let's just look at three more in, uh, I hope, relatively quick succession. In Matthew 2, starting at verse 11, after his birth in Bethlehem, It says this. Now, sorry, I think I said 11. Let's start at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the wise men who had come bearing their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's important, too, just because you see where that it fits here. You just see a providential purpose in that, among all the other things that you could get and pull from what's going on with the wise men and the magi coming from the east, the Gentiles coming in, the, the symbolism of the gifts, all that, okay? It's there, right? And it's, and it's wonderful, all right? But uh, as they departed, all right, they're leaving them. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, uh, the angel also had, had warned the, the wise men, the magi, don't go back to Herod, okay? It's a sinister plot, and they left by a secret way. They avoided him. And now what Herod uh, plans and plots to do is, okay, since the, I couldn't use the wise men to find the exact location of Jesus, okay, here's what Herod the Great all right, uh, greatly sinister, all right, as you probably know or will see here, um, plans to do. Since I don't know the exact person of who the Christ is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just make sure to wipe him out. So all infant males, two years and younger, are to be killed, slaughtered. And if we kill all the males, all the two-year-old and under, that would cover it. Because my guess in the studies, I'm just going to summarize all that I kind of looked into. My, my best guess, and from all I can gather, is Jesus is probably just sometime around one during this time. All right? So two and under just covers that. Is he a year and three months? Is he nine months? Is he a year and six months? Well, based on the events and the timing, all right, Herod thought, well, anybody, any infant male two and under... Would, would, would solve this problem that he had of a king, right, threatening his throne and his rule. So what happens is the angel warns Joseph and says, depart, okay, uh, while Herod's king, do not be in Israel. And so at this time, Egypt is actually a safe haven, 
All right, it's, it's, there, was a, there was a large community, all right, if you've heard of the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that kind of fits into this. So it was not uncommon. There was a haven uh, down in Egypt for a lot of Jews in Israel in times, in Israel in times such as this. So, so they go to Egypt and they're, just, they're, they're hiding out. They're just waiting. And as this, as this tragic right, a, a, a massacre happens, um, Jesus is protected. All right, and so Jesus is, is physically and tangibly, tangibly protected, and also the integrity of God's word is protected because this Messiah, born in Bethlehem, also should be called out of Egypt. Now, considering that immediate prophecy, it's a very interesting prophecy, as they all are, in my opinion, all right? Um, and the, the immediate context of Hosea 11.1 1, is an interesting connection as a prophecy to the Son of God, okay? Um, in Hosea, all right, just a, quick, just a quick background. In Hosea, God is using the life of a man named Hosea and his wife Gomer, who is unfaithful. She's a harlot. She gets into like the, basically like the sex slave, you know, market. And so Hosea literally has to go and buy her and purchase her back his wife has been unfaithful. She's left him. She's abandoned him. And this is a picture, God says. Well, and it actually happened. It's, 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 it's a real thing that also was a picture of God's faithful love for us. And in spite of our rebellion, all right, and in spite of, and in spite of our unfaithfulness and our harlotry, our spiritual harlotry, if you will, all right, God is still set on covenant love he is still faithful. He will still accomplish his plan. And so as you get to chapter 11 of Hosea, the son being caught up out of Egypt is a reference that God is using of how he delivered his people from Israel. I called you out of Egypt. I delivered you from bondage. I parted the sea and you came forth. I called you forth to be your God to set up a tabernacle, a temple, to give you a land, all right, to give you an inheritance. I called my son out of Egypt. That's the immediate context of 11.1. But according to the Holy Spirit and the New Testament scripture, this is also a reference. It's also, a, that was a type. That was a shadow, okay? That had with it something pointing forward, all right, that God would call his son up out of Egypt. And the fitting, uh, the, the placement here is very interesting and I think telling, okay, because um, at that point, right, in the prophecy, in Hosea, God is basically saying, I called you up, you rebelled, right? And then chapter 11 goes on to say, but listen, but I'm gonna restore you. And so we kind of, we see that backdrop. Right, we see that pulsing through the narrative, right? Though you're unfaithful, though you're rebellious, I'm gonna restore you. And then in Matthew 2, we see this directly connected to Jesus. So out of Egypt, I called my son to deal with this unfaithfulness, all right? To keep the promise of my covenantal faithful love, all right? Because what has God said and promised? That he has loved us with an everlasting love, with a covenantal love, all right? So um, God brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. Now he providentially sends them to Egypt because of what's going on with Herod and that treacherous plot. And he protects him. 
And so they're in Egypt for a very short season, relatively speaking, all right? And they avoided this tragic slaughter of the male infants. And during the slaughter, another prophecy is fulfilled. Look at the next section of Matthew chapter 2. Pick up at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, another fulfillment, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now Ramah, for some context here, is a small town north of Jerusalem, near Bethlehem, in the territory of Benjamin. And Benjamin was one of Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel's grave is located in this area, okay, in this territory. So uh, we see, so Rachel's dead and gone. She's been gone for a a long time, all right? But Ramah means high place. So it's symbolically, all right, representing here this, this place of oversight where you can just look across the landscape and just see like this slaughter of all these innocent children. And Rachel, who's actually dead and gone, just symbolizes just the, the mothers of Israel, that motherly affection for children and the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that would just be involved in just seeing these, having these Roman soldiers just come take your, your young child, your infant, and kill it right before you, right? And um, according to Jeremiah 41, Ramah was also the staging point during the Babylonian conquest and exile. It was the staging point and a gathering place for a lot of slaughter during that time of of Babylonian conquest. It was also where they would uh, gather and be shipped uh, to Babylon and transported as slaves and servants to the Babylonian Babylonian Empire. All right, so uh, this quote here comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. And Jeremiah, who is the weeping prophet, that's his nickname, because just his, his time, his life, was in this time period right as the judgment of God is coming, all right? The, the fullness of time for God's judgment had come, and Israel's about to be completely wiped out, the temple destroyed, and everyone either killed or taken off into Babylonian captivity. And in Jeremiah 31, 15, Jeremiah records this lament of Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Of course, Rachel's dead and gone for a long time. Symbolically, as Jacob's wife, right, she is, as I just shared, she represents the lament, all right, this motherly affection of the mourning of the loss of all these children in this judgment. But interestingly, the immediate reference in Jeremiah 31, 15 comes directly on the heels of a great hope and a promise that God will in fact restore his people and make a new covenant with them. One of the clearest prophecies, one of the clearest promises of the new covenant before it actually happened is found in Jeremiah 31, all right? And in Jeremiah 31, you can turn there if you'd like, uh, or you can just follow along. In Jeremiah 31, uh, we read this, if I can find it. 
you had time to turn there, apparently. All right, Jeremiah 31, same chapter as uh, Rachel weeping for her children, judgments coming, loss, destruction, devastation, death, the wages of sin is death, right? Um, with all that happening in, in the backdrop here, we see in Jeremiah 31, all right, this great promise. It says, starting in verse 27, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, this is his judgment, to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. But, in verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, his, and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For in the new covenant, all members of the new covenant, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So just that's very brief. It's worthy of a whole study and of, at least of a whole sermon. But just bringing it into the narrative here, bringing it into how fitting it is in Matthew 2 and how that points forward. There's a direct reference. This new covenant is coming right on the hills of this Babylonian captivity, signifying, symbolizing our fall, our deserved punishment. All right, God brings forth this promise. And so right here in the heart of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, going to Egypt, this destruction that reminds of that symbolism uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew is reminded of this moment, this great devastation, right? Where, where the consequences of sin and of judgment, right? And then it says, but this, uh, this fulfilled, this fulfilled something. There was a greater significance here. All right, there's a, there's a bigger problem here, right, that's fitting for Christ coming. The weeping, the wailing, the devastation, the destruction because of our sin, because of our rebellion. All right, and so right here in the narrative of Jesus coming and fulfilling these prophecies, we see that that pointed forward, that Jesus is here fulfilling that promise, that new covenant. Weep no more. Fear not, do not be afraid, for I come to bring you good news, glad tidings of great joy, which will be for you and for all the people. All right, so um, that brings us to one more, okay? And you're doing great, all right? You're doing great. Just stay with me. There's one more here. Back, if you return to Jeremiah, back to Matthew 2, all right? So we've got Bethlehem, we've got Egypt, we've got... Um, Rama, okay, this is just kind of symbolic of just the mourning, the problem, the sin, the devastation over Israel. 
And then picking up at 19, this return to Nazareth, another interesting prophecy. This one's actually, this has a very interesting part to it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's Herod's son, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So once again, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Pause. Do you just see, I know we focus on like the angelic announcement, but do you just see God's providence and the revelations he was giving to literally orchestrate all these events to fulfill all his promises, to protect his Christ and to bring salvation to us? And that's kind of the point because I know this is a lot to take in and I'm kind of hitting them, you know, kind of high and quick, but, but that's really the point is right, just that you're reminded this morning of the great links and the great orchestration and the great sovereignty and the great love and the great design that is behind your salvation and my salvation, right? So, so with that, let's just keep moving forward. So the angel warned him once again in a dream, all right, go to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, what's so interesting about this one is you will actually not find that as a direct promise or prophecy or quote in the scriptures. There's not an Old Testament scripture that says he will be called a Nazarene, right? So that just, but, but it's very clear here, this was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. But I think that's telling that it says prophets, that it's in the plural, Because all the other ones so far, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet. And it's in the singular, all right? And one of them was Hosea, all right? One of them was Jeremiah, right? One of them was, um, um, what was the other one? I went out of order. It broke my train of thought. Anyway, they were specifically listed, all right? You got Hosea, you got Jeremiah, and you got... um, um, Micah. Sorry, that was the first one. Micah with Bethlehem. But this one's, not, this one's not singular. It's not saying the prophet as if there's some missing quotation or there's some missing prophecy, right, as a direct quotation. So I'm going to do my best. All right, this is a, it's hard to be definitive here, but, but based on my studies and my readings and what I think a great many uh, theologians, right, and pastors uh, ha- have written to interpret this, I fall in line with, with the majority view, all right, that this, all right, it was spoken by the prophets that this would be fulfilled, that he would be called a, a Nazarene. Well, if you connect what we know about Nazareth, all right, that it was, it was really, it was considered a, a lowly place, okay, and it was a place where, uh, it was a place that was despised. There was a lot of prejudice against Nazareth. Do you remember the words of Nathaniel when, when Philip came and told him about Jesus? And he said, you know, come and see Jesus. And, and he realized he was from Nazareth. He said, remember what he said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? All right, so what seems to be happening here is, and, and it's in the plural that the prophets had foretold this, is that what we know of the prophets is that they did foretell all right, that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, that, that 
in a fitting form relating to Nazareth, Jesus would be despised. He would be rejected, okay? Um, he would be scorned, right? There would be a lot of prejudice against him. There's no in, intrinsic beauty in him that we should be drawn to him or desiring him, okay? So Matthew seemingly takes the general sense of the conglomeration of the prophets to say that this fulfills what was spoken by the prophets, that Jesus would come in this Nazarene, this Nazareth style, despised, rejected, a source of contempt, scorned, all of which are fitting description of Nazareth, all right? And so there are other interpretations of this verse, all right, what he might be talking about, but, but that's, this humiliation of Christ is very fitting, we know that's biblical. We know that that is a general sense of the prophets, that he would be a king, that he would be a ruler, a light for the nations, but that he would also be a suffering servant, scorned, rejected, despised, beaten, right, bruised, right, for our transgressions. So that just, uh, so that seems very fitting, all right, that Jesus would be a Nazarene, right? Just, just fits the narrative, doesn't it? Uh, condescending, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, becoming an infant. The, uh, God himself, the eternal God, the son of God, becoming an infant, lowering himself, and then not being born in a palace, but being born in a stable, right? And so from the, from his very, the na very nature of his incarnation, from his birth all the way to his grave, his life just seems to be encapsulated by this idea of what Nazareth represented, right? So, so it's fitting. You study that. Have some fun with that if you want to look into that further. But it's clear here in Matthew, right? It might be unclear what led to this, but the Holy Spirit was clear when he inspired Matthew to write this, that he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So um, there are... Um, there are, I, I, in my, from what I've heard and studied, I think there are at least over 300 prophecies. We don't have time to cover them. But Jesus Christ, our distinctly unique, qualified Savior, fulfilled every single one of them. And just in this brief, just in this brief synopsis, this brief survey this morning of just these geographic locations alone, Right? You see the orchestrated hand of God fulfilling his plan, right? staying on mission, right? and, and bringing forth this Messiah. Jesus is wondrous. The work and the plan of God is wonderful. And words can barely do it justice. Again, all these could be just broken down and could be done a lot more justice. But I pray and I hope this morning that you're seeing that though Micah says, when Micah says he's born in Bethlehem, Hosea says he will come out of Egypt. Jeremiah says his presence will lead to great weeping like in Ramah, all right, and the result of that, uh, that time period. And the prophets say he will be a Nazarene. Who could possibly fulfill even those four in one person, let alone the 300 plus others? I've not counted them. I'm going by what other people have said. I'll take their word for it, all right? Let alone the 300 plus others. Who can do this? What child is this laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping? Christ alone, only Jesus is sufficiently qualified to be our Savior and to procure for us eternal salvation. 
He is the lion and the lamb of Revelation 5 who alone is worthy to open and to take up the scroll. And I pray that your hearts and your minds this morning are filled with the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love as you contemplate all that has gone in to your salvation, right? It's amazing. You spend a lifetime just pondering it, meditating on it, studying it, praying about it, singing about it, listening to sermons about it, and you will never get your fill, right? It's, it's that awesome and amazing. Namely, that Jesus came to rescue you, to redeem you, to save you from your sins, to reconcile you back to himself, and to share with you unmerited, undeserved, immeasurable riches of his glory for all eternity. He came, as we sing in in the song, he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The angels heralded this, heralded, heralded that this is good news of great joy. By the way, if you're ever preaching, don't save the word heralding till the end when you just have a dry mouth and yeah, that cotton mouth. That's hard to say. The angels heralded that this is good news of great joy. And it is, isn't it? It most certainly is. It's the best news of the greatest joy. And I pray that our response for this month, for this season, this day, but all our days ahead will be in line with those who first experienced it. All right, the wise men, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After the shepherds saw this, it says, they returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God. The angels uh, were singing glory to God in the highest, singing that praise and of that glory. Mary, her soul, she says, her soul magnifies the Lord and she treasured up all these things in her heart, right? And Simeon blessed the child. Ryan reminded us of Simeon. And Anna, the the prophetess waiting also in the temple, says, and she, she was filled with thanksgiving, right? And those are fitting things. So listen, as you contemplate the wonders of your salvation and of Christmas, I pray that that's the response you're finding, all right, in your soul. Right? As you meditate, as you pray, as you sing, as we share around the glories of these truths this Christmas season and in all our days ahead, I pray that you will be filled with those wonders and that God will just be greatly glorified. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's overwhelming what you have done for us, Lord. And as we see just right there in such succession, the great links and with great precision and perfection that you executed your plan. It it is, it it truly is amazing. And, and, and words can barely do justice to the great magnitude and the awesomeness of the son of God condescending, coming to us at Bethlehem and going through uh, all that he went through to fulfill every prophecy, not just these Advent prophecies, but all the way to uh, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the entering into glory. You are a great God. And what wonder it is that we are part of this story, that at the heart of this fulfillment, at the heart of this precision and this, and, and, and this design is your desire to save us 
to, to be with us and for us to be with you. Father, I pray that, that, that the glory of that will fill our hearts and that like these characters in the, in the first Advent story uh, are revealed to us, I pray that we will find our responses very similar, that our hearts will be filled with rejoicing, with exceedingly great joy, with thanksgiving, with proclamations, Lord, returning to our places of work and to our homes as we study and read and are reminded of these things, glorifying you, praising you, and telling others, proclaiming the wonders of what you have done. And I pray that these things will be treasured up in our hearts and that we will just continually ponder. Oh, grant us the grace to have pondering hearts in the busyness of life, in the busyness of our culture, in the busyness of this season. Lord, grant us the grace to ponder these things, to behold the glory of the Lord so that we may be transformed and filled with these very fitting responses of worship, adoration, thanksgiving, and joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.